You want to take your Bibles out? We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, the goal is to get through the first 11 verses today. We're going to start a new series this morning in the pastoral epistles. Uh, that would be 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Not exactly sure how it all will go, but it's our goal to cover these. They might intermingle some. Now, these letters here that we have, these that are called the pastoral epistles, as I said, are written by the Apostle Paul, and they are written to Timothy and also to Titus. And yes, they are helpful to pastors, uh, which is a good thing, but they are also written for, for the church. It's not just things for pastors, but it's for all of us. This, these would have been letters, yes, written to Timothy and to Titus, but they would have been letters that were expected to be read to the churches that they were pastoring. And so again, it isn't just an individual letter just for them, but it's for all of us uh, today. It's for all of us this morning. And so uh, I look forward to going through these. Hopefully you'll have an opportunity to read First and Second Timothy and also uh, Titus as well. Uh, I want to read this in sections this morning and, and look at these different sections. This is kind of an introduction to these, to these books, and so hopefully you will follow along, so I think it will be helpful as we continue in them over the, over the coming weeks. But looking at verses 1 and 2 first, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, Paul here says that he is writing this letter. Until very recently, I don't want to get into this too much, but until very recently, everybody believed that Paul wrote this letter. Now, I think those who today would have some doubts, I think they're in error. I don't think it's correct. I think we can take the word as is written here and understand that this is Paul, and this is Paul the Apostle. Uh, Paul the Apostle, you recall, was called out by God for a very uh, specific task, a very certain task of going about and sharing the gospel with Gentiles, right, with, with those who are not Jewish, to go and share with them that the gospel was for them too, that it wasn't just a, a Jewish religion, but that Christ had come for their salvation also. And so Paul, we see, would do this. We, we know that Paul, in the book of Acts, would go on missionary journeys. Uh, we know that Paul went on at least three of these missionary journeys. Uh, and so Paul was very active in sharing the gospel with those who are lost, even going uh, to the ends of the earth uh, if necessary. And there's some of Paul's life that we are not too sure of. In Acts, he's kind of left in jail. And we don't know all of it. We have some tradition that we can go by. But many of us know about Paul. We know that he writ, wrote much of uh, the New Testament. And so this is the Paul who is writing this letter to Timothy. Now, some of the things that we know about Timothy. Timothy was from Lystra, and he met Paul on, his, on Paul's second missionary journey. We have this account in Acts. It can be read about there. Uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother are discussed in Scripture. His mother's name was Eunice. His grandmother's name is Lois. And we learn that they were very instrumental in his faith. Paul says that at one time. His mother being Jewish, his father, though, was a Greek man. And so Timothy would have been considered kind of a half-breed amongst Jews because his father was not Jewish. And so this is probably why Paul, he would come across Paul. 
during this time. And Paul sharing the gospel with Timothy, with Timothy's uh, family. Now at this time, when Timothy would receive this letter from Paul, he would be the pastor at the church in Ephesus. And so we already went through Ephesians together. This is the church of which Timothy now is, is the pastor. And there are some issues in the church which we will, well, we will get to. Uh, but we want to dive a little bit more in this introduction of, of Paul and Timothy's relationship. Because Paul, again, it seems, was the one who led Timothy uh, to the Lord, his family uh, to the Lord, possibly. Uh, but Paul seems to have had great trust in Timothy, even though we see in Scripture that Timothy was really young. We'll see that as we go through this book together in Timothy, where at one time Paul says, don't let people hold this against you, your age, your young age. Now at this time, uh, scholars would say when Timothy was receiving this letter, he might have been around 30 uh, or in his, in his lower 30s. And if that's the case, that means when, when Paul and Timothy first met and when Paul started to trust Timothy on his many trips, Timothy could have been as young as 15 at that time. That Paul really trusted him, that he saw a work of the Lord in Timothy and began to take him on some of these missionary journeys. And Paul would trust Timothy greatly, not just to go on trips with him, but Paul would begin to trust Timothy to, to take letters to churches, to help him start churches, to leave him at churches, uh, to help them to find uh, more pastors and elders and, and teachers within the church. And we see here in verse 2 of what we read, Paul loved Timothy so much and had such a close bond with Timothy that he would call Timothy my true child in the faith. Paul and Timothy here, it seems, had a very, very close relationship, relationship of trust and of love that was built on the Lord and was built on what the Lord had done in Timothy's life and how God was, was using this relationship, like I said, to, to see churches grow, to see churches being started. And it's a great example, actually, of what we have of, of some mentorship of a great care and concern that, that Paul would have for this one that the Lord would allow him to, to lead to the Lord, but then he would continue to, to nurture that relationship and to see good in Timothy's life, right? He, he's constantly urging Timothy in these letters and in other places to stay, to stay firm in the faith, keep teaching the truth, keep fighting this battle. Paul would again and again go to Timothy out of his love for him to encourage him to stay true to what God had called him to. And it's good to have those people in our lives, isn't it? To have somebody who encourages us and the encouragement that we need to continue to focus on the Lord and who he is. And that's what Paul would do for Timothy very often. We'll look at verse 3. We've read through verse 2. Let's read verse 3. It says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So we see here, Ephesus is brought up, as I already mentioned, Timothy is the pastor here in Ephesus during this time. And I want to remind you, uh, if you were here in our, in our, as we went through the book of Ephesians together, hopefully you remember this, Ephesians, Ephesus, is not a good place. Uh, it's, it's a culturally good place. There's a lot going on. Uh, there's a huge temple there uh, to Artemis, or the Temple of Diana it was also called. To a, it is, it is worship to a, a goddess that would take place there. It was a huge temple. It was something for everybody to see. And we know about Ephesus back in Acts 19. If you want to look there, 
Paul goes into the town, he, he stirs some controversy. Because he's preaching uh, this gospel message about Jesus. And it seems as if uh, idol worship starts to go down some. And that's a problem because people aren't coming and buying the knickknacks to worship this idol. To worship this false god. And so they end up running him out of town. But it caused quite a stir. This was a city full of sin. It was successful, yes, but it was sinful. I bring this up because, again, it's very common for us to look back into history and to think that anybody uh, who was alive, even maybe in the 1800s all the way down, were just Neanderthals in caves. That they were all ignorant. Uh, That they were all just very simple-minded. I want us to realize that Ephesus, very similar maybe to us today, We live in a place today that is very successful. Very successful. There's no doubt about it. We are the leaders in this world in so many things. We have so much success and so much to tip our hat to and to hold on to. But yet, we realize, I think, as people of the Word of God, that we live amongst a very sinful people. While there's a lot of success, there might even be a lot of peace in their minds, a lot of comfort, a lot of security. We know that underneath all of that isn't much peace. We know this, don't we, as we walk around. There isn't much real hope. And this would have been Ephesus. This would have been the city that Timothy was pastoring in, the city to which Paul had kept Timothy in. And to where now he tells Timothy to stay. Stay stay there. And I I don't know this situation. Maybe, Maybe Timothy was at his wit's end at this point. Maybe Timothy was ready to move on to something else. But Paul is telling him, no, you don't need to leave. I need you to remain in Ephesus. And there's there's a certain task I have for you. I need you to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Timothy, being the pastor at this time, should have been the one teaching and leading and guiding, but it seems as if during this time of Timothy doing this, inside of the church, false teachers began to come up with different doctrines. And note where these false teachers came from. It wasn't false teachers from the temple of Diana coming in and trying to sway things. It was from within came false teaching. From within the body, from within the church, false teachers were rising up and starting to teach false doctrine. And what Paul has to urge Timothy to do here is he says, you need to confront this. I charge you to get at these people and tell them they cannot teach these doctrines here anymore. As you read more about Timothy, and you see the encouragement that Paul so often given Timothy, it seems as if Timothy was somebody who needed encouragement often who needed the encouragement to fight battles. That's what it kind of seems like. When you, when you read the different commentaries on Timothy, it seems to be common consensus that Timothy might have been quite a timid person. That he might have been somebody who didn't necessarily want to be up front. He didn't want to have to go and have confrontation. And they say that because of how often Paul is saying, go and confront. Go and deal with the problem. Go and tell these people that they need 
to be quiet. This isn't an easy thing to do. As much as we would like to think we're people who don't mind confrontation, when it really gets down to it, confrontation bothers all of us. Now, there might be certain people that you love to confront. Don't get me wrong, and we like doing that. But there's other people in our life that we don't want to confront. We don't want to have to confront people. Now, again, remember, Timothy at this time would have been about 30 years old. And I've got to tell you from experience, it is not comfortable as a 30-some-year-old, which I'm not anymore, sadly, a 30-some-year-old to go up to somebody in their 50s and 60s and tell them, I need you to be quiet. I need you to stop teaching this because what you're teaching is wrong. i got to tell you, almost every time I've ever had to do something like that, the response is, you don't know what you're talking about. You're too young. That's happened to me quite often. And the response I give back is very simple. Okay. I'm not here to fight you. Right? Just trying to tell you that what you're teaching isn't right. Well, how do you know? Right? That's, that's, what, that's usually what the comeback is. And so no doubt Timothy is facing this same thing. And Paul is telling him, listen, you must do this. You are the pastor of this church. You are the shepherd of this people. And if you love them, you will go to these false teachers and you will deal with them. Now, we don't know how it's going to play out. You don't know what happens. But you must do this. As we get through 4 through 7, as we're going to read here in a moment, we're going to see a little more of a comparison of true teachers versus false teachers. So look at verse 4. It says, Nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. I want to stop there, and I want us to compare what Paul talks about, the difference between true true teachers and false teachers. In verse 5, he kind of gives us a definition of what true teaching looks like or what a true teacher is. He says, first of all, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. This is something that is a must for someone who is going to be a teacher of the word of God especially. But you'd see this even in public school education or in any teachers or coaches that maybe you've ever been a part of before. There are some who are there for what? To get a paycheck There are others who are there because they feel this is where they belong, right? And and students notice that as well, right? I I can kind of go back in my head and think about the teachers that I've had in the past, and I can say, this teacher who I had in fourth grade loved us. Loved us, no doubt. This teacher that I had in fifth grade, paycheck. Right, I mean, you can kind of go through that, and you you know that. You You can sense that. You can... You can kind of understand that. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, true teachers teach the word of God and they do it because of a love that they have and their heart is pure in this. So the the love of the Lord that they have is pure. But also the love that they have for the church 
is pure. It's a, it's a good love. It's the love that they, that they should have for the body of Christ. But that also then extends to a love for the lost. A true teacher of the word of God is going to have a love for the lost. Not hate them, not despise them, but have compassion for them. Want them to know the truth of the word of God. How much God has done for them. What is there available to them through Christ. That's what a true heart, a true love for them will look like. But we know that all of this can only be done from somebody whose heart has been changed by God. It can't be manufactured. Right? It just, it just can't. It's not something that can be evoked or, or made up. It's, it can only be done by somebody whose heart has been changed by God for that calling. It's not something that can be that can be forced. And you guys know this in your own life. I'm sure you guys all have your own passions, you have your own likes, you have your own hobbies, and there's been times you've tried to force yourself to do something else or to, to like something else. And finally, hopefully, or maybe you're in the midst of it right now, you realized I'm a I'm a circle peg trying to fit in a square peg hole. This ain't working. This isn't who I am. I don't like this. I I can't do this. You know, for some of you, we might say, hey, go do children's church. And it just brings you so much joy and passion and excitement. And you just love those kids. And others of you, you're like, I could probably execute some of these kids. (laughs) Right? I'm not saying you're a mean person. That's not what's being said. It's just, that's not you. Right? That's not who you are. You do other things. You're better at other things. And so in this case, the true teacher that Paul's talking about here has to come from a pure heart. And we know scripturally that a pure heart can only come if God changes somebody's heart. It can't be manufactured. And because of this, Paul would go on, a love that is issues from a pure heart how, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The teacher has a good conscience and a sincere faith. Well, how does this happen? Well, the only way that this can happen is when, when this teacher is teaching the word of God truthfully for the purposes that the word of God intends. Not, not to, to misuse it, not to misshape it, not for gain. No, it's teaching straight from the word of God, the purpose of the word of God, to the people of God and saying, here is the message of God. That's the only way a true teacher could walk off and then say, my conscience is clear today because I've studied the best I could. I, I've done the best I could. I've shared with them from the word of God. I haven't deviated from this. I just told them what it says. I haven't come up with some fancy story, some fancy illustration. It's, this is what it says. Here it is. Now, God, please do with it as you wish in their hearts. That's the only way you can walk off after teaching and say, my conscience is clear. And even doing that the best of our abilities, I have found at times, I think, man, I wish I would have said this. I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I would have said this differently. There's not, you could still get better, don't get me wrong. But this is where a good conscience comes from, is a sincere faith. Well, what's a sincere faith? It's a faith that's truthfully in the scriptures. It's actually there. And so we see this as kind of a definition of what a true teacher is. The true teacher is going to share the truth of God's love to a lost and dying world in hopes that God will prick their heart, in hopes that by faith they will trust 
in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. This is what a true teacher is. But this obviously isn't what's happening in this church. As we said, people are rising up and false teachers are rising up. And now there's some discussion in the commentaries of what are these false teachers. And to be quite honest, we don't really know fully of what these false teachers were teaching or what they were doing. But there are some signs that point us to some things. Um, You remember in Galatians, we went through Galatians before, but in Galatians, Paul is dealing with the church where he says the Judaizers have come in. Uh, These were Jews who were coming in and they were telling the Gentile people that in order to really be saved and trust in Christ, you must also do this, 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 and this. You must be circumcised. You, you must observe the Sabbath. You must do these things according to the law of Moses. They were, they were adding to the gospel. And Paul uh, took up that case pretty well in Galatians. Now, the, the, the term Judaizer doesn't come up here in Timothy, but we definitely get a sense that this is some of what was taking place. Uh, people were coming in and starting to add to the gospel in some way. Uh, now, there's also some uh, Gnostics Uh, that probably were coming up uh, at an early time of this. But again, little's actually known about all of that, of what the false teachers were doing. But no doubt there were hints of the Judaizers there and Gnosticism. Now, they're teaching false doctrine, it tells us. And it's interesting that already, early on in the life of the church, the church hadn't hadn't existed very long at this point. Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe 30-some years, 20-some years, something like that. And already... Within the life of the church, false teachers are trying to ravage the true church. Now, there's some good news in this. This ravaging has not stopped for a long time. It still exists today. You see it, you know it. But it has not stopped the church, has it? That's good news. It's not going to stop the church. It will never stop the church. And we can put our hope in that. And we can praise God for that. That even though this early on they were trying to do it already doesn't work. It doesn't stop the gospel from going and moving on. But already, people are rising up, and I do want to note this. The motives of these individuals who are teaching this might not be evil. It might not be people who are like, you know what? I'm going to go join that church. I'm going to be a good church person for four years, but then I'm going to start to teach false doctrine. And I'm going to do it to try to just destroy them. I'm going to go from the inside and then just destroy them. I don't think that's necessarily what they were doing here. I really think these people's motives thought they were doing what was right. But it was, in fact, evil. What they were doing was wrong. What they were doing, it says here, is they were abusing the law. That's what Paul says. He says they are twisting it. Certain people, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding. And so they're trying to take this law of Moses and apply it to the church today, but they're twisting it for wrong purposes. And Paul says in verse 4 and also in verses 6 and 7, he says their focus is on the unneeded, the unnecessary, and the unproven. Notice that. These people are focusing on the unneeded, the unnecessary, and the unproven. And what the false prophets are doing is they seem to have a very good knack at causing a little bit of conversation which they know is going to lead to arguments that's what's happening just just little seeds of doubt 
little twists of scripture that's going to cause people to start to, start to uh, discuss things and maybe start to get into arguments. And notice what Paul says, the things that they're saying cannot be proven. Right? Things about which they make confident assertions, but it's not things that can actually be proven. The things that they are saying, what is happening? They're just causing all this frustration within the life of the church. And again, I don't even think Paul's necessarily saying everything they're saying is wrong, but it does seem to be saying, he does seem to be saying the things that they're saying definitely are not helpful right now. We still see this today. We, we still see this all the time in the life of the church. Maybe you've heard of something like numerology. That's a real word. Where people look in scripture and they find numbers and they take all these numbers and they come up with some math equation and all of a sudden they have the answer to how much food you should eat every day in ounces. Or when Jesus is going to come back. Or in all these different things. That's a real thing. I've looked it up on YouTube. All over the place. All over the place. With thousands of views. Thousands upon thousands of views of these people finding secret codes and scriptures about numbers. That people are putting their hope and faith in. This is false teaching. This is what Paul is talking about. Or now, one of the common things I hear as well is, well, we found a new meaning to this Hebrew word. And this new meaning changes everything. It changes everything. These people usually have one of two things. They have really good editing on their videos or really bad editing on their videos. It's usually not much in between. And they share what this new word is and how it's, it changes all of church history to see that we've been wrong for thousands of years. This, again, just leads to argumentation that isn't true. Some small little thing over here that God just revealed to them. That's not how God works in Scripture. Or also, and this might hit a little closer to home. I don't want to step on your toes. But at least within people I hang out with, end times theology really hits home when it comes to this. A lot of speculation. A lot of talk of what maybe might be, but it cannot be proven. But let's have classes after classes after classes to talk about what cannot be proven, but it might be, just so we can all argue and hate each other at the end. That's the way it should work. And now, to be honest with you, I have no doubt in my mind that if we did a study on Revelation in Sunday school, it'd be our highest attended class ever. No doubt in my mind. We know this. I know this for a fact. It would happen. And there's nothing wrong with studying Revelation. It's actually something we should do. But you'd have to stay on point and talk about the proven and talk about the true so that we don't fade off into what Paul's talking about with these false teachers. Notice what he says. He says, look at verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions vain discussions some random thing that at the end of the class we are not going to come to a conclusion don't we just feel the grace of God today as we leave here no I hate all of you because you're all wrong and I'm right 
And there's just frustration now within the body. And Paul is telling Timothy, confront these people. These men that are not focusing on the plain things of the word of God. These, These men who are not focusing on the main things that we see in scripture, but who would rather cause conflict. He's saying, Timothy, deal with them. Because Timothy, our teaching, as you know, does not lead to needless arguments and speculation. He says in verse 8, he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. He says what they're talking about, the law, is a good thing. But they're not using it well. And they're not teaching it well. Listen, end times, eschatology, a good thing. But in the hands of the wrong person, it's not good. It's not being used well. It's being twisted for purposes and for means. So he says, Timothy, our teaching must not lead to these needless arguments and speculation. You see, he also also puts this on the false teachers in verse 7. He says, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding. They had no training. They were not brought up to be teachers. They desired to be the teacher, but they didn't have the understanding that it was needed to be the teacher. I want to be the teacher. Well, what's the truth? I don't know, but let me teach. That's kind of what's being said here. And that's important for us to hear. Sadly, I hear this in some of the churches that I get to talk to, where training and education is seen as a negative. You need to be Holy Spirit-led, as if that's some mysterious thing where I can just come up here and say whatever I want and say, so says the Holy Spirit, and you guys just go away. Thinking, man, he was just filled with it today because I think he spit on three people, and he almost passed out once. That don't mean anything. Is he teaching you the truth? That's what matters. Does he know how to handle this book well? So that the way he interprets scripture is is with scripture. Not taking one little verse out of context and making it twist into something about his week of something that happened and now we can all go and go off and just do whatever we want today. No. Does he handle this book well? Does he know the truth and does he declare the truth? Don't matter if you desire to be the teacher. It's have you been called to be the teacher? Are you doing it from a changed heart? Are we teaching out of love and care? As it said there in verse 5, with a good conscience and in a sincere faith. You see, Timothy was trained for a very long time under Paul. For years and years and years. Paul himself was trained for years. And then even after his conversion, he went and was trained again for years before he ever went and did any work. Why is this? It's because the truth that we are handling deserves it. It deserves the training. It deserves the understanding. So that when we go to tell people about the love of God, we are actually telling them about the love of God, not something else. I don't want to tell the the people outside of these walls about the love of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. Our love is, is not true and genuine and perfect. We fall and fail at it all the time. You know that. Those of you who are married, you know that the love that you have as husband and spouse, it fails all the time. It's not always there. And it can be a struggle at times. 
But the love of God is always there. We want to share with them the love that God has for them. How God can change them. What God has done for them through the blood of his son. And so let's finish. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul states here in verses 8 through 11 that the law is for lawbreakers. And one of the commentaries that I'm using, his name is George Knight, and he, he shows and walks through how these, uh, these different sinful attitudes here coincide with the Ten Commandments. I want to show you this real quick. If you start in the middle where it says those who strike their fathers and their mothers, uh, you see that uh, in verse 9, towards the end of verse 9. We know that this would align with the fifth commandment of honoring our parents. You move on. He says, for murderers, this would be the sixth commandment for murder. Verse 10, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality, this would fall under the seventh commandment of adultery. The eighth commandment of stealing is enslavers. Those who literally, that word, steal people and enslave them. You go to the next one, liars, this would be the ninth commandment. False witness and perjurers, the ninth commandment. And then it's ended by covering all the commandments by saying whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, night has a way, and I don't want to do this, but if you go back up where it says uh, those who strike fathers and mothers and you start working backwards, he uses those words of uh, the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, and sinners for the unholy and profane to show how these break the first four commandments. Having no other God before me, of worship, of keeping the Sabbath, of not, of not speaking God's name in vain. And so it seems here that Paul kind of takes the law that these people were twisting, and he kind of puts it back on them. He says the law is for lawbreakers. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, it's very simple. If, if, if in here we never broke the law, then guess what? We would not need the law. It wouldn't be needed because we would never, we would never mess up, right? It's just, it's just, not, it's just not there. Uh, you think about some of the silly rules that we have nowadays or the signs that we have in different places, and you think, you know, the only reason that sign exists is because somebody did that at one point in time. They put their finger in there and, and got shocked or whatever the case might be, right? Why is that? Because there's lawbreakers, that's who the law is then for. That's what Paul's saying. Yet we know in our hearts, that even those of us who've been saved by God's grace, there's still something within us that desires to break the law of God. So the question would remain of what Paul says here. When he says it's, the law is just for lawbreakers, where does that put us? How does the law then apply to us Today, is the law just something that we put aside, or is the law something that we can still apply to our lives as Christians, to those of us who've been justified, those of us who have been saved? Well, yes, the law applies to us today as Christians. As I said, because we still have this desire sometimes to 
to break the law. That's why we have a part in our service of confession. Because we have no doubt that as all of us walk in this door this morning, we've broken God's law this week. We've failed and we've fallen short. And so then the question remains, how then do we use the law? Well, throughout church history, it talks about a threefold use of the law. Number one, the law shows us our sinfulness. It allows us to see that we are sinners. If we didn't have the law, we would not know this. And so by looking at the law and reading the law and observing the law, we realize very quickly, even as we go through something like the Ten Commandments, man, I am a sinner. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I know I'm a sinner because when I read those books of the Bible that we try to avoid a lot of times, I think, oh my gosh, I've done a lot of this. I do a lot of this. And so that's one of the uses of the law. It shows me, Tim, Tim, you are a sinner. But another use of the law is the civil, the civil use of the law. It helps to curb lawlessness, and it also allows us to punish it. The law creates order. The law creates protection of the just from the unjust. This is why Paul would talk in Romans about the civil authority. And they're there on God's behalf to deal with those who are unjust. Because that is the intent of the law. It's to keep the unjust from the just. But there's a third use of the law, and this is the one that's most applicable of what I'm trying to point to us, for those of us this morning who are Christians. We know that God has worked in our life, and that is this. The law is there for those of us who are saved to be able to do good works and to grow in righteousness. You think of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul would say, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. How? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, what's Paul talking about there? He's talking about the law. You've been saved by grace through faith. Let no man may boast. But not so that you can just sit there. No, now you go and you can do good works. Now because of what God has done in your life, you can actually go and be a good person. You can have a pure heart. You can love people how you're supposed to love them. You can actually obey the Ten Commandments. Or you can go out there And be what God has called you to be and do what God has called you to do. This is what the law allows us to see. And so I can look at it and I can know, well, God, this is how you want me to speak. This is how you want me to treat people. You don't want me to kill people. You don't want me to steal from people. You don't want me to lie to people. You don't want me to look at people and just covet the things that they have. No, you want me to treat people different. That's the way the world treats everybody. That's not how I should treat people. And so the way that God uses the law in our hearts today is one, I know I can't live up to it. And some of you here this morning, maybe that's what, that has been your goal in life is you think one day when I die, the way I'm going to go to heaven is if I do enough good things for God, that's going to get me to heaven. Well, what you need to hear this morning is you, you will never, you can absolutely never do enough good stuff to get you into heaven. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You, you cannot do that. You cannot live a perfect, 
sinless life. And that's what's required. The Bible tells us as soon as you break one of the commandments, you are worthy of death. It only takes one. And so the way that God uses the law, hopefully in your heart this morning, is to see your sin. But God also uses the law to point us to Christ. To know that Jesus came, why? So that you could be forgiven of breaking the law. You see, Jesus came and he walked this earth and he lived a perfect life. As Pastor Scott was talking about, I can't remember if it was here or in Sunday school, I think it was Sunday school, that our kids this morning talked about the temptation of Christ. Was it this morning or last week? Last week, but the devotions were this week uh, in family devotion time. And we see that Satan would try to tempt Christ and it just didn't work. You see, he lived the perfect life and he died the death that you and I deserve. Why? So that we could be forgiven of our sins. And some of you, I hope, for the first time this morning would realize that and would see that and would understand that. The love that God has for you. That in your imperfection, he would send the perfect one to die in your place. So that the law would no longer have a hold of you but that you would be freed from it through the blood of Jesus. I hope that you see that this morning. Now for those of us who have understood this, we know this, we've been saved by God's grace and we cling to it. I hope that what we see in the law this morning as we look at it and as we understand it is that yes, we need to live according to this. Yes, that God has given us the Holy Spirit and we have the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to go and to do good deeds, and to do good works. But as I said earlier, we still always have that time of confession, don't we? Because we all know that we fall short. And this morning, you shouldn't sit here and think, well, maybe the Holy Spirit's power in me just isn't strong enough. No. That's not it. That's not it. Do you know the work of the Holy Spirit? It actually says in Scripture, Jesus says, He will come and point you to me, He says. The actual job of the Holy Spirit is to continually point you to Christ again and again and again. And this morning, as we, over, as we look at this law, what I hope God does through the power of the Holy Spirit for you as a believer this morning is to point you back to Christ and say, Aren't you so thankful for Jesus? That when you guys have a time of confession as a church, it's not a wondering of, man, I, I hope he did today. I hope he forgave me today. It's not, it's not a type of thing that Israel would have had to go through, that the high priest enters the holy holies, and we think, I hope he took his bath the correct way. I hope the high priest made the sacrifices according to how he was to do it so that we could be forgiven. I, I hope that this happens. I, I hope that God accepts us today. As believers in here this morning, when we look at the law, we can go to God saying, I know that you've forgiven me of this. Because it's not about me. It's about the perfection of Jesus and his blood is on me. And so when we look at the law this morning as the church, as those whose God has touched and has saved. We're not held by the law because Christ has freed us from it. 
But now we have the freedom to live the law out to the best of our abilities, knowing that it's by his grace that we get to do it. Well, I hope our series in Timothy will be fruitful as we see Paul continue to encourage Timothy to confront the false teachers of the day. I feel like it's a message for us this morning also to continue to confront the false teachers, to stay true to the word of God, to to do what uh, the pastor that I like to listen to a lot, Alistair Begg says, to keep the, the main things main and to keep the plain things very plain. And let's focus on those. Not leaving with argumentation, not leaving with speculation, because that's not the God we serve. We don't serve a God of speculation. We don't serve a God of arguing. We serve a God who's made it very clear of how much he's loved us as sinners. So much that he would send his son to die for us. That's what we live in. That's the good news that we have to tell other people. And that should be our message day in and day out. Let's bow together. Let's pray. We're going to sing a song like we do each week at the end of service. This is a time for you to respond to the word of God. I trust that you will respond to the word of God as fitting as he's calling you to do as we pray and as we sing. God, thank you for your word this morning. God, help it to be true in our hearts. God, I pray for those this morning who do not know you, that you would soften their heart. You would open their eyes to see that the love that you have for them through Jesus. God, I pray and have compassion on those people this morning who are just striving to earn their place in heaven. Because God, we just can't earn it. And I know that they have to be exhausted. And God, I pray this morning they would see the rest that they can find only in Jesus. I pray that they would trust in him. That you would free them of the burdens that they continue to carry. And lay them down at the feet of the cross. God, I know that only you can do that work. And we trust that you will do that work. God, for those of us who you've saved maybe even a long time ago, I pray that this morning it would have been a fresh and new reminder that you continue to forgive us. You continue to love us. And it's all because of Jesus. And so God, we thank you for Jesus this morning. We praise him and we we worship him because he is the one who is worthy of praise and worship, our Savior and our King And so, God, even as we sing this last song, I pray that it would be true. The words that are coming off of our lips be praise and, again, worship to you and to you alone. So, God, help us now to respond to your word as you see fitting, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.